Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Trisha Stefankowitz, and I am going to spend some time talking about, we'll talk about five different common nutrition myths and really dig through, you know, why people think that they're accurate and just really decipher the, the, the evidence behind the myths that you hear. Before we start this show, I want to remind you that I have a freebie and it's a meal planning made easy freebie. And basically it's just uh, what I use every weekend when I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to consume for the week. And so in there, there's like a meal planning worksheet and there are some recipes and there's like a pantry list of things and, and ingredients that might be helpful for you to have. So hop on over to my website, trishard.com and pick up that freebie. Okay. So talk about nutrition myths. You know, there's a whole bunch of them out there. I think they're everywhere. They're perpetuated by those who typically may not even be qualified to decipher or to speak about nutrition information. You know, they might be from somebody or a program that is and stands to profit from a diet program or some kind of food product. There's just so much noise in this nutrition space, and it can be really difficult to sift through the myths to find the facts. Nutrition can be confusing, and, you know, much of the information out there, there tends to be a lot of studies, and then the studies, the information that comes out to the consumers may be flawed or just misinterpreted or just not real at all. So why do nutrition myths exist? Well, typically, you know, there's so much noise in the social media space and just on the internet in general. And I think there's many writers and bloggers who really like to talk about food and nutrition, but they really might not have the professional background to really, you know, decipher some of the nutrition details. Like in all science, we continually learn more about other nutrition myths because people draw on their own, you know, experiences. So for example, I feel like, you know, you may know somebody who lost weight and did this so-and-so thing to lose that. And so then they're so excited and they want to share what they did to do that. And so then whatever that happens, maybe that perpetuates some falsehood that might not be based in anything because you have, you know, one person that, that had an outcome. And so, you know, I think that sometimes it's very good intentional and very good intention, but you know, there's a human bias there that might let lead us to believe that what they did is right and that will work for everybody. And I think that's the big key here is that, you know, what works for one person isn't going to be enough to have probably enough evidence to really maybe have that same outcome for a whole bunch of people. So even though, you know, there's a lot of really well-intentioned people, there may be just a flawed way that the nutrition science is interpreted and the advice is shared. So today we're going to talk about five common nutrition myths. Okay, so let's start. Myth number one, eating any carbohydrates is going to cause weight gain. Who hasn't heard this one and who hasn't done this one, right? So the fact is, is that there's not one nutrient or food or food group that causes weight gain. Weight gain is 
a pretty complex issue and it can be attributed to just more than one food or more than one food group. When we talk about carbohydrates, it's really important to decipher the kind of carbohydrates and their impact on your health because they're not all the same. We typically have two kinds of carbohydrates. You know, we have your complex carbohydrates and your simple carbohydrates. The complex carbohydrates are really those like whole grains and fruit and maybe even, you know, beans and lentils. And these carbohydrates are really an essential component to a healthy lifestyle because they offer a lot of nutrition and vitamins and minerals and fiber. But on the other hand, we talk about simple carbohydrates. These tend to be things like fruit juices and candies and baked goods. And these carbohydrates tend to have a little bit more sugar and they're not as nutritionally dense as the complex carbohydrates. Carbohydrates in itself are a major food group. And so they really offer, and they are a key component of our lifestyle because ultimately carbohydrates break down into glucose, which is the body's preferred energy source. So all food breaks down into glucose, but carbohydrates are able to break down quicker so the body can get it and, you know, and use it as energy for what it needs. So carbohydrates are necessary, but I think what happens is, is that any food, not just a carbohydrate in excess of what your body needs results in weight gain. But in Western society, I think that there's just this preference and there's a pretty big intake of highly processed carbohydrate foods. So that's not the whole grains. That tends to be more of the baked products and the cookies and the chips and the pizza and all that kind of stuff. But these carbohydrates that are prevalent often tend to be higher in calories and really it doesn't take that much in terms of volume to really consume enough that weight gain would occur. In addition, these are the carbohydrates. So these are the ones that are like the highly processed carbohydrates. They tend to be, I think we tend to crave them a lot more. So, you know, I think, sure, you may be somebody who craves fruit, but my suspicion and from my own personal experience, I would crave chocolate chip cookies way more than I crave fruit. So because of that, of that craving for sweet foods and these highly processed foods, I think what happens is, is they tend to be more caloric. You don't need a lot of them to probably meet your daily needs in terms of your calorie needs. And I think those are the foods that we often overeat because they make us feel so good. It like triggers that that chemical in our brain, like that feel good response. So the bottom line is it's not carbohydrates that are doing it. It's really the, you know, deciphering what kind of carbohydrate you're eating that might be something that can cause weight gain. Complex carbohydrates, which are the ones that offer fiber, you know, they digest food and absorb more slowly than the simple carbohydrates. So you want to choose these carbohydrates because they offer the most bang for your buck when it comes to nutrition content. So that's the bottom line. The bottom line here is there's no one food nutrient or food group that causes weight gain. Myth number two, gluten-free diets are healthier and I should be on a gluten-free diet. So that's the myth. The fact is, is that 
only people who have some kind of celiac disease or some kind of gluten sensitivity need to be on a gluten-free diet. So gluten is a group of proteins that are found in grains, such as like wheat, barley, and rye. And what happens is, is that people who have been diagnosed with celiac disease or some kind of gluten sensitivity need to avoid foods with gluten. Because what happens is, is that celiac disease is an autoimmune condition and it results when you eat foods that have gluten in it, it results in damage to the small intestine. So your small intestine has these microvilli in them, which are these like finger-like projections. And when someone has celiac disease, those finger-like projections become flattened and they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be like nice and plump. And because they get flattened, there's a lot of malabsorption that occurs there. And so people with celiac disease will typically, how they start to know that maybe they have celiac disease is they are probably malabsorbing, they're probably losing weight, they're probably vitamin deficient, and they're probably having diarrhea. So what happens is, is once they start eating things that are gluten-free, they start to gain weight, they start to have, they start to get replenished in the vitamins or minerals that they're depleted in. And so there's a necessary component of having, you know, a gluten-free diet for that population because, you know, to eat gluten is much more harmful and they need to avoid those foods because it's causing them harm. But if you're not a person who has celiac disease or gluten sensitivity, you don't need to follow a gluten-free diet. The thing with gluten-free is that, you know, they... First of all, I don't know if any of you have ever tried gluten-free bread does not taste that great. So it doesn't stay that fresh for that long of a time. And typically foods that are gluten-free don't have as much vitamins and minerals and they're not fortified, I guess, to the same degree as if it wasn't gluten-free. So you don't really, if you don't need to be gluten-free, then there's really no reason why you would have to follow a gluten-free diet. With conditions like celiac disease and to have like some kind of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, the gluten-free diet helps because it helps manage the symptoms. So if you don't have, you know, if you haven't been diagnosed with celiac disease or a gluten sensitivity, then eating foods that have gluten in them are really, you know, you want to eat foods that have gluten so they can be part of an overall healthy diet. And you want to emphasize foods that offer nutrition, such as whole grains and refined grains. So, you know, you don't, the bottom line here is that if you are not, you know, gluten sensitive and you don't have celiac disease, there's no real benefit for you to eat and follow a gluten-free diet. Myth number three, alkaline water is better than regular water. Okay. The fact here is, is that plain wooded water is totally fine and that there's no evidence to support that alkaline water really has any health benefits at this point in time. So recently alkaline water has become all of the rage and it touts these health benefits, including weight loss, increasing energy, I think there's like some anti-aging benefits that are touted and some immune support. 
recently I was in two different places and I can just tell people are so like, what is this? Oh my gosh, it's alkaline water. And I saw a guy and he was looking at it and he was just like, yeah, I'm going to just grab that because it seems like it's probably healthier, right? And they charge a lot more for alkaline water or sometimes it's like up to a dollar more, but there's no evidence to support the claims that it's actually doing any of these things. So alkaline water is referring to the pH level of our water. Most water has a pH of seven and alkaline water has a pH that is higher, but our bodies are really, really great at maintaining this neutral pH. And so how you get to a neutral pH is, you know, by drinking water that's closer to the normal pH of seven. So, you know, just kind of taking that into consideration that we may not need to drink something when our body can compensate and produce and make, you know, our bodies neutral and to the pH that it desires. The studies done for alkaline water have been relatively small. And so at this point in time, there's not enough evidence to support any health claims about alkaline water. The U.S., so all of these studies are based in the U.S. So if you're in another country, you know, you may have more data than we have here. But at this point in time, the U.S. FDA doesn't support any of the health claims made about alkaline water. And so the alkaline water at this point can be more of a marketing ploy because you're paying more money for this product, but you're not having the evidence to support the claim that it's making. Although, you know, alkaline water is thought to be mostly safe. We don't know if, you know, depending on which water I guess you're consuming, it can have more contaminants or less minerals that are needed So maybe you would have possible mineral deficiency, but I think with the alkaline water, the real thing is here is that we don't really know the health benefits and there's not really any scientific data at this point in time to prove that it's, it's, you know, following the claim that's out there, that it's healthier, that it's offering some benefit. So the bottom line here is that regular water is sufficient for most people. Myth number four. I can't eat after 7 p.m. or whatever other time that you decide that you can't eat after. It could be 6, it could be 8. But the fact is, is that there's really no magical time at night to stop eating. So at 6 o'clock, something doesn't just magically happen in your body. Or at 7 o'clock that says, oh, you shouldn't eat anymore. It's largely thought that it's the really the overall calorie intake throughout the entire day that makes more of a difference in terms of, you know, weight gain or health benefits versus the timing of the calories that matters. Okay. So you're going to hear a lot about nighttime eating. Okay. And so there is evidence to show that those who work night hours have a greater incidence of obesity and nighttime eating in itself has been attributed to things like habit and stress and cravings and mindless eating. And typically nighttime eating isn't really related to being hungry. And so some of the other things that are contributing to nighttime eating 
can make it really difficult to pay attention to your hunger and satiety clues. And so you may find yourself eating at nighttime, even if you're not hungry, because it's a certain time at night. Maybe there's a routine or a habit that you do at night. Maybe at nighttime, it's the time that you can, that you finally have five minutes to yourself after a long day of work and making dinner and cleaning up. And that's kind of your time that you can veg out. And so it's really easy to get into the habit of like, let me just grab something that's going to make me feel good in terms of food and turn on the TV because all of those things may be providing some sense of comfort. But that nighttime eating may not really be, in fact, caused by hunger. It might just be more of a habit. And one other thing I want to talk about when we talk about this time of not eating after like seven o'clock, there is, you know, intermittent fasting. So I, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't talk about intermittent fasting, especially if we're talking about, you know, that there's really no magical cutoff time. Intermittent fasting is something that you may have heard about that it's gained a lot of popularity in recent years as an eating pattern that vacillates between periods of eating and periods of fasting. So a common plan for intermittent fasting is that you maybe eat for eight hours and then you fast for 16 hours. You know, so people that are doing that would probably fall into the category of they might not be eating after six or after seven because depending on the amount of time that they want to fast. So what might happen if you're doing intermittent fasting is, is that you stop eating pretty early in the night. So maybe that would be a six or seven o'clock. And then typically you're skipping breakfast and you're only eating two meals during the day. And fasting has been around for many years and there is often a religious reason in addition to this, you know, this popularity that it's gained in like the kind of the fitness world. But I want to say that the fasting is not for everyone and it may not be beneficial in people who are, who have diabetes or are underweight or have a history of disordered eating or low blood pressure or are, you know, trying to get pregnant or breastfeeding. So the bottom line with this myth is, is that no matter the time, whether it's seven o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night, if you are truly hungry, you need to eat. Because the thing with intermittent fasting and the thing with nighttime eating is, is that, you know, although they may be used for certain purposes, really what the goal here is, is to start to listen to your body and the cues that your body's telling you. And so if you're intermittent fasting and you're starving and you're ignoring those cues, then it's going to be really hard for you to get to a place that you have, you know, that feeling of identifying when you're truly hungry and when you want to eat. And remember with like any eating pattern that you do, you want to try to be able to to do something that you can do forever. So if you're going to, you know, take on some kind of pattern of eating, you want to make sure that it's something that isn't just short term. It's something that you feel like you can do and it's sustainable over time. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is that juicing or cleansing is required to detox your body. So the fact is, is that our body has natural mechanism through which it detoxes. 
your body is an amazing, I mean, just so amazing all the things that it can do. And so typically we don't need specific foods or drinks or diets to detox our body because it knows what to do. And, you know, there's organs in our body that help detox these and detox the things that we eat and drink. So that could be, that's our kidneys and our liver and our lungs and our skin and our GI tract. So there hasn't been any evidence to support that cleansing or juices actually detoxes, you know, specific toxins. But also, you know, I know in terms of like, you know, juicing or cleansing, I think that sometimes it has a role in the sense that it helps eliminate food that may be bothering you. Or I think sometimes people use cleansing or juices as like this pivotal step when they're trying to make a health change. And it's kind of a way that they can just like kind of start over and renew themselves. So they're not meant to be on a long-term plan because they are low in calories and they don't usually have a lot of protein. So they're just meant to be done in the short term. And if you decide to do any kind of like cleansing or juicing, just talk to a doctor or some kind of nutrition professional um, before you do that. And especially if there's supplements involved in that, you probably want to make sure that you have somebody who is well-versed in those supplements to kind of ensure that you're safe. A lot of supplements that are taken are not regulated by the FDA, so you're just kind of taking things. So you just really want to make sure that you have a health professional helping you through that process. The bottom line here is that the best way of eating to promote overall health is a diet rich in like veggies and fruits and whole grains. And that, you know, this way of eating can include if you wanted to, or if you felt like you needed to, you could include juicing or cleansing, but your body is, has a really great way of, of detoxing itself when it needs to. So before I leave these myths and we talk about like some things to look out for, I really want to just say that, you know, even though we're talking about how all of these are nutrition myths. I think that it's important to remember that we all come from a really different background. And so, you know, culturally, there may be things that, you know, that there's no evidence to support, but that people do because it's, it's a cultural or traditional thing um, that's prevalent in a particular cultures and there's values held in that. And that's okay. There's no right or wrong here. So What I'm here for is just to decipher the myths based on the current nutrition information, but keeping in mind that nutrition information changes all of the time and that, you know, you really just want to kind of do your research and do research beyond what someone is just telling you to do, do some really good research to figure out, you know, when it comes to nutrition, if it's something that works for you and that it has evidence to support it. And I want you to remember just to kind of keep this open mind that, you know, there's so many factors that come into play when it talks about eating. And it's like, whether it's our taste or our preferences or our family's taste or, you know, our budget or our accessibility or the values that we have, you know, all of these things play into the nutrition myths. And again, there's no right or wrong here because what I've decided is, you know, what we've talked about here is being nutrition myths for some other culture in may in fact be a way of life and not a myth at all. 
And so what I would say is just, you know, just have somebody, if those are things that you want to do, just have somebody with you that knows what they're doing and that you're just kind of not doing it alone, that you have a professional. So when we're talking about nutrition information, like how do we know what's credible? How do you decide that? Well, I think you really try to seek out information from credible sources. So that would be, you know, if you're using like a government site, so maybe you do something like that has a gov at the end of it or an edu. I tend to do edu kind of kind of things because I feel like if it's associated with a with a renowned university, then there's probably some credible information in that. You want to kind of do your own resource, you do your own research and consider the body of evidence. So instead of just having one person that went through something and it changed their life, you know, maybe have a little bit more subjects so that we can see what the effect is over more people than just your one person. And then follow like other dietitians or other nutrition professionals or other credentialed professionals, because I think that's where you're going to get a lot of information. And again, in saying this, I am a nutrition professional, but you know, I think there are different nutrition professionals that practice differently. So what are some red flags that you need to look out for when you're trying to decipher nutrition information? So what I would say is, is to really like look at the website that you're looking at and see if they sell like any products. Typically, if you're going to have something like a food or supplement product, something like that, they may be really pushing their own agenda with offering nutrition information. Remember that any food is usually regulated in the United States by the government, but any supplements are not. So again, anybody can just put together a supplement and sell it and mark it up and create tons of money. It's the food and drug industry, especially the supplement industry is a huge money maker. So, you know, when you're getting nutrition information, just make sure it's not from a company that's actually selling a product because most times they're probably going to, you know, have a little bit of bias, whatever research they have, because they're trying to sell their product, evaluate any websites or social media, and just make sure there's no gimmicks there or you know, gimmicks that could be like weight loss guarantees or a celebrity spokespeople, or, you know, if somebody exaggerates the claims or has an, an extremely restrictive diet, then that might be some kind of marketing gimmick when it comes to nutrition information. And, you know, you can listen to your family and friends because, you know, their, their opinion is really important to you. And, you know, they may mean really well, but they, by sharing their experience and not having a lot of evidence behind it, may be perpetuating some of the nutrition myths that are out there based on what has happened in their life and the personal experiences that they've had. So the bottom line in all of this is that it's really difficult to sort nutrition facts from fiction. And to just really keep an open mind when it comes to nutrition information, knowing that it can always change, but maintain a healthy dose of skepticism too. What we choose to eat is very complex and there's a lot of factors that will 
you know, that will play into some of the myths that I've just mentioned here. So, you know, there might be like some cultures that like and and trust alkaline water. There may be some cultures that believe in detoxing and that's perfectly fine. And that's fine because there's no one way of eating that works for everyone because we are all navigating all of these factors and all of the research at the same time. So research the information that any nutrition information that you are looking into and just don't take it at face value and just keep an open mind, right? So remember that nutrition information is always changing and you know, what I mentioned today as a myth, maybe in 10 years will be some kind of, it'll be a fact, who knows. But what we've talked about today is based on the evidence, but know that in different cultures, that evidence might be different because there's a lot more cultural influence in that. So I hope this helps. And if you have any other nutrition myths that you want me to debunk, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Instagram at Whole Health Empower. I hope you have a great week and I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. If you found value in this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Being a busy woman or mom doesn't mean that we have to give up on our health, wellness, or self-care. Together, we can take tiny imperfect steps towards creating the whole health we desire and deserve. You can find us at wholehealthempower.com or on Instagram at wholehealthempower. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.